relate to Christ. You see, a lot of us, I think, we struggle day to day in our walk and in our faith because we, there's nothing which we relate to. We, well, that's, God, that's Jesus. Yeah, well, He did that or He lived that way because He was God. And so the relation point for us is, well, well there, there is no relation point. There is no, okay, well, he did this, so this means that I can do this. Or he has that power, and that means I have this same power, this same strength that Christ had. And, um, and so we, don't, we oftentimes live defeated lives. We live lives where um, we don't relate to the person who died on the cross for us and lived this life. Uh, you know, it's obviously it's good that we talk about the cross, and the cross was enough and all of that. But it is so crucial that we talk about the life of Christ. Uh, and not to rehash everything over these past couple weeks, but one thing that we have, through studying Scripture over the past couple weeks, have determined is that Christ lived fundamentally and primarily out of His humanity while on earth. And we talked about how does that work with his divinity and being human, but if he's all-knowing, all-powerful, but how does that work with his humanity and so on and so forth. So just once again, we have to begin with that biblical understanding that Christ lived fundamentally and primarily out of his humanity. Otherwise, this passage will make no sense. So with that said, let me give you two comments before we jump into Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, first of all, um, I, this past week I had heard a, a reference anyways to a sermon um, that the title of it was Jesus, Our Heavenly Father. Uh, and I think that's a distinction that's, that's substantially unhelpful. Uh, I think the distinction is we have the Trinity and we have the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And to call Jesus the Father, I think, is, a, is unhelpful. Although, He is ultimately, right, the Trinity, three in one, one in three. Three separate roles, but they're the same person. So equal in essence, yet distinct in roles and function. We've, we've kind of talked about that's the, that's the orthodox uh, Trinitarian view, uh, obviously, that we hold to. But... It's unhelpful, particularly when we get to a passage like this, uh, to not draw the distinction between there being the Father, God the Father, and then God the Son, uh, again, separate yet one. Uh, so we understand Christ in relation. So that's the first comment I wanted to say. And the second comment this is this, is that this is really the bookend sermon to last week. So last week, just very, if I could put it all in one, like the whole thing in a nutshell, we talked about Christ living in His humanity, and we talked about Him having utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So He lives His life dependent upon the strength of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, what that came down to was Christ submitting to the authority of God, His Father, obviously, and uh, the strength and work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so the conclusion for us from last week is that if we're going to live this life, and ultimately a lot of it, if not all of it, comes down to us being willing to submit to God and to his plan. To his if we if we trace humanity back most of our problems come down to authority. 
Same thing in the garden. Satan wanted authority. He wanted to be in charge. And Eve did not want to listen to authority. And thus we continue to struggle because we want to do things our way, yet God wants us to do it this way. And uh, it comes down to ultimately to, oftentimes to, that and to being willing to submit. So, I wanted to say that last week is Christ living in the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting the power of the Holy Spirit. This week is how did Christ then live in that power of the Holy Spirit? How did this work? How did he live this life? And so with that said, let's start at Hebrews chapter 5. We're just going to concentrate on verses 7, 8, and 9. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, or to, to at least later this week, to read through the whole passage, the whole chapter. But for today, 7 through 9, he says this. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning. Um, and that it would uh, affect our lives for all of eternity. And it's in your son's name. Amen. So. This is some pretty bold claims going on here in Hebrews chapter 5. I mean, just, just look very quickly. It says that although he was a son in verse 8, that he learned obedience. This is speaking of Christ. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And he was being made perfect. Now, how is Christ learning obedience and how is Christ being made perfect? And that is part of the tension this morning that I hope we, as we leave here today, will understand that and how it applies to us more rightly. But let me begin with a few thoughts on New Year's. How many of you guys have established some New Year's resolutions? Uh, you have a New Year's resolution? New Year's resolutions. Okay. Uh, so the rest of us just, you know, we just uh, do whatever, right? Uh, now, as we come to the, I'm just giving you a hard time. As we come to the end of December, everybody begins to think about the new year. We think of new beginnings, new resolutions, new goals. Uh, let me begin by pointing something out to us from the very beginning. Um, just as cutting down weeds without getting to the root does not abs does not uh, kill the weeds in our lives, so does setting goals and mustering up resolve not work unless you first have a firm foundation. Uh, so we can talk about change in our lives all we want, but until we understand how change took place in Christ's life and then how that applies to us, then we can talk about change all that we want. We can talk about new attitudes, new habits, new whatever, all that we want, but until we have a firm foundation, we're not going to get there. So in some respects, this has a lot of application to this specific time of year and how we... Um, are beginning to think of new beginnings and new life in these next few days. So, 
real quick. Week one, understanding Christ was fully human. That's what we talked about week two. Understanding that Christ lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And week three, we're going to understand how Christ could and did grow in faith. Uh, how he grew in faith. How he grew in obedience. And, and this faith to be obedient in the process. And that's where we're going to, um, to study today. So how we understand Christ and his growth in faith directly affects how we understand our own growth and faith, right? Because we're called to be like Him, called to live like Him. So if we're going to live like Him, then we need to understand how does Christ grow in faith. And that's clearly what Hebrews tells us. Um, Then setting goals um, without understanding that uh, is not going to lead us to anywhere fruitful, uh, I mean, I think oftentimes we, we set new goals and things for our life which are not bad, but then we just we end up just repeating the same things, right? Like we fail, you know. But I hope that today a couple things happens. I hope that, number one, you, you have a foundation both, for, both for, uh, first for having change that takes place that is, that is long-lasting, but then also change that is of greatest priority, Okay, so some of us are going to make changes in our life, and we're going to put a lot of effort towards various things that are probably not the most valuable for us to do. Like, for instance, if your faith and walk with Christ is not where it should be, at least for this point in your life, then probably putting all of your energy towards going to the gym is a waste of time. Your body will soon fade away. But your knowledge of the Lord and your relationship with Him will last for an eternity. So I'm saying, so sometimes our, hopefully, not sometimes, let me back up. Hopefully this will help us understand what priorities we should set for this new year. I'm not saying going to the gym is bad. I need to go to the gym, right? But, if I'm not spending time learning and spending time in relationship with my father regularly, then I, don't, I only have so much energy, and I don't need to be spending it on that. If my marriage is falling apart or struggling, I don't need to be spending time at the gym. I need to spend time with my wife. Does that make sense? So these are priorities. that We see Christ setting, living a life of priority uh, and learning faith and growing in faith. So I hope that this will challenge us in a number of different ways. Um, so let's begin today with a question. The question is this. What do you think of when you consider Christ and his spiritual life? What do you guys think? Just some thoughts. Some doing. Talk. What do you think? You think of Christ and his spiritual life. It's the first thing that's come to mind. No, no wrong answer. That it was perfect? Okay. Yeah, easy? Okay. What else? Okay. Okay. What else? A couple more.
These are all right. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So what do we think about when we consider Christ a spiritual life? I hope that already this morning some of that's been challenged a little bit as we've read through the text. Um, but is it possible for Christ to have grown in his spiritual life? Because I, I would imagine that many of us, if not even at this moment, still struggle with the idea of how could Christ grow in his spiritual life. Um, how, could he, how could this happen? He's perfect, right? He's, he's the Son of God. How does this, how does this work? Uh, I mean, many of us, I think, would think his relationship with the Father must have been unbroken, steady, and uh, a, a word that I would use, static, right? So static means like it just, it is, it was here. His relationship with the Father was perfect, and it was just maintained just like this. And his faith was perfect. It was up here, like it was, it was perfect in its fullness. That I, I should use that phrase specifically. Uh, and was just maintained from there. And I think many of us view Christ and his relationship with the Father as being unbroken, steady, static, easy, automatic and 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 I, th- I think according to the text that th- that's not quite right and that's what we're going to um, going to talk about today so remember we're to imitate this person how can we imitate Christ if his faith was perfect in fullness and was steady the whole time is that even remotely possible for you and I has anybody failed at that yet? Right? Okay. So we've already, okay, you get the point. So here's the deal. In one sense, it is true. In one sense, it's true that Jesus' spiritual life, um, that Jesus' spiritual life, that his relationship, and we have to pay attention particularly to these words, that his, in one sense, it is true, his relationship with the Father was never broken. Christ never sinned, so he never lived in broken relationship with the Father. He always had perfect relationship as in there was the relationship and it was there and it was growing and thriving. So understand that since Jesus never sinned, he never experienced broken relationship with the Father. He was always in perfect communion with the Father. John 15.10 says, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. But there's another sense in which the thought above about Christ um, uh, living in a static, unbroken relationship, there's another sense in which it's not true and that Jesus' spiritual life was anything but static and steady. He instead... I think, see, here, here's where we have kind, of, kind of two opposing views. You have, well, because Christ lived in perfect obedience to the Father and never sinned, therefore his relationship with the Father uh, must have been perfect as far as his faith in the Father. And, and it had to stay there the whole time. But I think what we see in Hebrews in, in, the, in the better part of the New Testament is that instead it wasn't that Christ and his relationship with the Father that his faith was up here and his obedience was up here but instead his faith and obedience looked more like this that doesn't mean he sinned 
but that his faith instead was the greatest example of a dynamic, growing, fruitful relationship with the Father. So yes, the relationship was unbroken, but his faith in the Father, his, his obedience to the Father was growing. Okay? So his obedience at that point in his life, I'm giving some caveats, and we're going ex- to work right through the text. But his obedience was perfect at that point in his life. So we're not saying that Christ sinned. We're not saying that he was not righteous. We're saying that his faith level, if you will, was here, and then three days later it's here, and then three weeks later it's here. And f- so his faith was perfect at that point in his life. Okay? So if you're already doing a pushback, like, oh, I don't know about this. I mean, what does Hebrews 5 say? It says that he learned obedience and that he was, being, that he was made perfect. He's not referring to his birth was made. He was made humanly perfect in that sense. And let me say one last thing. When we think of Christ and perfection, we often think of Christ being perfect in his totality. That's not the case. The Bible does not teach that anywhere. Now Sarah and I were having dinner last night, and we were talking through this, and Sarah... Uh, it was just it was a neat conversation, but Christ, like y'all, I don't know. If we think about this, and you're gonna be like you're gonna be like, duh, Matt. But I think some of us think this way. You know, if Christ was a carpenter, right? Y'all ever think that he built a chair that might have been crooked? Huh? Or did he do it perfectly? What do you think? Do you think he ever built a chair that was crooked? Yes, absolutely. Does that mean he sinned? Maybe if his father told him to follow directions and he disobeyed his father. But no, that, that act was so, Jesus, when we think of perfection, uh, w- when we say perfect, we have to refer specifically to his righteousness and his sinlessness, not to that he did everything without mistake. Does that make sense? See, a lot of us look at Christ and we go, well, he was perfect, he never messed up, and then so I have to be perfect and never mess up. And then that, that translates beyond our sinfulness and our attitude and character, you know, and those kind of things, and it transfers into all of our life. And it doesn't mean we can be lazy, but it just understand the distinction there. So when we talk about Christ being made perfect... Um, and Christ growing in his faith, we just need to draw a couple of those distinctions. So, with that said, let's begin chapter 5, verse 8. He says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So again, a reminder that this is why it's so important that we understand Christ as living fundamentally out of his human natures. If we don't, then we have a terrible, under, a terrible time understanding this text. How did the divine... Learn obedience. Think about that. That's impossible. He would not be divine. He could not be divine if he learned obedience. But if we're referring to Christ and his human nature, then he can learn obedience, as the text claims. 
I think this is also a, a challenge to us that when we, when we approach texts, to spend time studying it, because there is so much truth here uh, that it's easy just to gloss over these words. Um, so that's why we're going to spend the remainder of the time just on these few verses. So, he says he learned obedience. So, on your, on your notes there, I encourage you to take good notes. First, we must recognize that the author of Hebrews is speaking of the human experience of Christ. So, I've already said a number of times uh, that we, we must understand this as speaking fundamentally, or of Christ living fundamentally from his human nature while on earth. But here, even in Hebrews, he is declaring that he is speaking of his human nature. Look back at verse 7. The first thing we see, there's kind of two evidences of this. The first is that he says in verse 7, in the days of his flesh. So he's not speaking of Christ learning obedience in eternity past. He's speaking of Christ learning obedience in his flesh. So when he took on flesh in the incarnation, he now is learning obedience. So he says, in the days of his flesh. Secondly, in that verse, he says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. In the divine nature, think about this, Jesus had what? Infinite power, infinite knowledge, exhaustive knowledge. And I think his proclamation here of Jesus offering up prayers and supplications indicates just how human Christ was. Why make these prayers if you already know everything, including the answers to your own prayers? Think about that. Why make these prayers if you already know the answers to your own prayers? Instead, Jesus knew how dependent he was on the assistance and resources of the Heavenly Father. Okay? So verse 7 here in Hebrews helps us in considering Jesus' Jesus's human experience. So, next main point for us this morning is that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay? So the other was kind of like a, a precursor disclaimer, if you will. Now, the main point, beginning with the text, is that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Two possibilities. Here's what I want to talk about first. Two possible uh, explanations that I don't think are plausible uh, in explaining this verse. Okay, so learning obedience, and I want to talk about some things that I, two uh, possible explanations that I don't think are plausible for us to get. First one is this: Jesus learned to obey his Father for the first time in the incarnation. I don't think that that is a plausible argument. You're saying, wow, okay. So are you saying that Jesus had already been obeying the Father for eternity past? Yes, that's what I'm saying. So namely, Jesus could not have obeyed the Father prior to the incarnation. So that's, that's one possible explanation to this, is that he learned to obey the Father for the first time in the incarnation. So only as he took on human nature did he experience for the first time what it was to obey the Father. So I don't think that's a proper understanding of Scripture. Uh, Millard Erickson is, uh, is a great theologian, except for when it comes to this point. 
He says this passage suggests that obedience was something that he learned and that such obedience was perhaps something unusual or unexpected for the son. Um, yeah, I, I just, dude, you're all, I, okay. So two thoughts to the contrary, right? I'd encourage you to either write these thoughts down or to at least write these verses down. First thought to the contrary, that, and the thought is Christ learned obedience for the first time in his humanity. One thought, first thought to the contrary of that is this. Jesus' own teaching about his relationship with the Father prior to the incarnation suggests his obedience to the Father. Where does Jesus refer to this? John chapter 6, verse 38. It's the first reference. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who what? Who sent me, right? That would suggest submission to the Father prior to the incarnation. So he's submitting to the Father in the sending to the earth. This is not saying that Christ refused to come or didn't want to come. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that Christ came at the will of the Father. Second verse, John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Again, not that Christ refused to come, but that He came because the Father sent Him. So we, here we have submission prior to the Incarnation. We have Christ saying, not, we have Christ saying Yes, Father, I will go. It is Your will. I am going. And He's the one who sent me. So it seems clear that the coming of Christ was the will of the Father. The second thought to the contrary that Christ learned submission for the first time is that Hebrews does not say that Jesus learned obedience. All right? So this is, this is why language and words are so crucial for us. So think about this. It does not say in Hebrews that he learned obedience. Instead... It says that Christ learned obedience, what? What's it say after that? Through his suffering. So the point is not that he learned to obey. The point is the context in which he learned to obey. So he didn't learn to obey for the first time. He wasn't learning obedience, the thought of obedience for the first time. He was learning obedience in a different context. And that which was a context of suffering. So he's learning obedience in this new context. He already knew how to and was practicing perfect obedience for all of eternity. He was now learning how to obey in the context of suffering, affliction, etc., so it wasn't that obedience was new, it's that this kind of obedience was new. The obedience in a different context was new as he took on the flesh in the incarnation. So, what we've talked about is one possible argument of how to, or one possible idea of how to explain this text, uh, which I think Christ himself and Hebrews itself does not allow for that explanation of that he learned obedience for the first time in his incarnation. Instead, it's an obedience, just a different kind of obedience that he, and obedience 
ultimately he has been experiencing for all of eternity and will continue to experience for all of eternity. Again, let me, let me say this because I just want to make sure we understand. We're not saying that Christ is not equal in essence, equal in nature to the Father. He is the Father. They are three, but they're one. But, all right, so this gets into that realm of where we just can't quite grab a hold of. So I, I understand we're dancing like right around that line, right? Okay. So I just wanted to admit that this is, some of this is going to be beyond what we have been created uh, to even understand. Okay, so we're dancing pretty close to that line. Second, possible, but I don't think plausible reason for this or, or explanation for this is that Christ was obedient in the past, was disobedient in the past, sorry, and now learning obedience. Um, obviously, I mean, most of us right there, we just kind of go, ah, well, that's not possible, but some people would hold to that. Basically, he needed to obey rather than disobey, although this might be the way we do it, it is certainly not the way that Christ did it. And just look a few verses e earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So, I mean, it's clear in Scripture that, that Christ was still without sin. So if these cannot explain what Hebrews means by he learned obedience, then what does he mean by Christ learned obedience? First possible explanation. Christ encountered much hatred and affliction from those he deserved honor. From those whom he deserved honor. This is kind of a 1A, and then the next one would be kind of 1B. would be better than 1 and 2. But first of all, Christ encountered much hatred and affliction from those he deserved honor. He was afflicted, scorned, ridiculed. We know this, right? Within this context, he knew that his obedience would ultimately, or would only, intensify the suffering, the affliction. But instead, Jesus resists the temptation to avoid suffering, right? We see him resisting that. We see him persevering through, even at the cross, right? impending death, suffering, wrath of God coming, and he pushes through. So even though he knew that great suffering was headed his way, he learned to obey the Father and every command he had without fail. Let's read John chapter 8, verse 28 through 29. He says this, So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So even in the face of suffering, Christ still obeys the Father even knowing that that obedience would probably most likely lead to greater suffering, to greater affliction. So, second, Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Second part of the explanation. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. So you're saying, 
All right, Matt, so you just said what the text just said. Yes, but people try to explain the text in different ways. So we're going to take, what does the text say? The text says that he learned obedience. What do we mean by Christ learned obedience? Again, back to the phrase that Jesus' spiritual life must have been anything but static, anything but automatic. Instead, Jesus grew in faith every step of the way, grew in obedience every step of the way. Notice, notice the Hebrew says here, he does not declare simply, although he was a son, he obeyed the Father in the midst of what he suffered. Right? Instead, what does it say? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So in what sense did Jesus learn to obey? Uh, think about this. Christ faced increasingly difficult situations as life went on. I mean, we see this in the Gospels, right? I mean, what, particularly once his ministry, like you just watched the last three years of his ministry, the, the three years of his ministry, and you see the persecution mounting and climaxing, of course, at the cross. But you see it increasing. You see the trials, the suffering increasing. Temptations got harder, affliction grew in intensity, death was around the corner, but yet he exercised obedience in the midst of situations that were increasingly difficult. This is where I, I kind of hope, I hope some of this kind of begins to jump off the page. I want you to think about this for a second. Christ, think of Christ at a younger age, whether that's 30, 29, 28, 15 faced lighter, what, we'll, what I'd like to call divine demands, right? So he's following the will of the Father, and he faces lighter, relatively speaking, demands of the Father. It was in these easier situations that Christ learned to trust in the Father's provision, the Father's guidance, the Father's goodness. You think about that. So he learns to trust in these lighter situations the, the will of the Father, his goodness, his guidance. And it would seem that these lighter experiences were a sort of like uh, training ground, if you will, for the next step in his life. It was training him for what God had planned for him next. It was preparation for the much harder experiences to come. So Christ is brought through. I mean, just, just follow through the Gospels. He's brought through increasingly difficult situations which prepared Him for the greatest demand of all time. The cross. I mean, there is no greater demand that God could put on anybody's life than bearing the wrath of God for all the sin of all men of all time. There's no greater demand and so God's strategically, and remember this, right? God is sovereign. God controls everything. God decrees everything. So this life that Christ is living, God is orchestrating all of the situations in which Christ finds himself learning obedience and exercising faith and growing faith. So every step of the way, Christ's obedience is, is strengthened. His faith is strengthened. And God continues to grow his, his faith, to continues to grow his obedience until it finally climaxes at the cross. And Hebrews says he was made perfect. 
don't want to get ahead of myself. But we see this growth in Christ. So, you say, okay, I, I, I kind of see that. Let me give us two indications that I think warrant this understanding. Two indications that warrant this understanding. First of all, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to the Father what? What does it say? Oh, I'm sorry. What's the verse say? What's that say? With what? Loud cries and tears. Back to the text. What's he saying? Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became, I'm sorry, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who, to him who was able to save him. We must, here, here's, here's the proclamation, we must conclude that the situations this verse points to are ones in which Jesus experienced agonizing hardship. We must conclude that. And that Jesus' trust in the Father and His dependence on what the Father alone would provide Him was hard fought and obviously won. He fought to believe. He fought to obey. He fought in prayer as He hoped in what the Father would provide. These times of shedding tears was not a time of effortless acts of obedience or an easy walk of faith. So we think of Christ in his spiritual life as easy, as automatic. Then why did he shed tears and, and give loud cries to the Father during these times? If, it's be, if he did this and his faith and journey was easy and automatic, then this verse is nothing but theatrics and should be rendered as disingenuous. These words mean nothing. It was anything but static and automatic. Instead, he struggled. He fought. He had faith to believe, to obey. In his human nature, Jesus fought for faith and struggled to obey. Uh, the inclusion of the words with loud cries and tears tells us the reality of the struggle Jesus endured as he trusted and obeyed his Father. I just want to just stop for just a moment. Like, do you ever find yourself in that moment where you know you need to obey or you know you need to have faith? And what does that look like for you? Does it look like moments of loud cries and tears and fighting to place faith in the Father? Or does it look like you fighting to find something else to place your faith in? I would argue many of us, it's the latter. Because that fight's much easier. It's also much less effective and much more temporary. Christ continually fights tears, loud cries. And, it, and you guys and understand me, it's not, it's not, it's not that he, the point is not that he had tears coming from his eyes. The point is that he fought for obedience and faith. So, the second point from the text, I think, that helps warrant this understanding that Christ learned obedience and grew in obedience is the Garden of Gethsemane. 
So with these thoughts in mind, I want to encourage you guys to go back. As I was studying this week, rereading through the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ, through these lenses, uh, just really, I mean, some things just really jumped off the page. So let's read through that, and I hope some things jump off the page at you today. Verse 36 in chapter 26 of Matthew, he says this, Then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now you guys understand, this is just prior to the crucifixion and, and what's going on here. Okay. Sit here while I go over here and pray. Verse 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father. Just, guys, just, just see Christ's humanity here, okay? My Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Loud cries and tears, okay? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you see his trump desire there, right? Let's let's keep going. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Another conversation for another time. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. And what did he pray? My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. See his humanity. He is struggling to have faith and to obey the Father. But each time he has said, ultimately, not my will, but your will. Verse 43. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Guys, if, if faith for Christ was easy, automatic, was from its fullest, from the very, or to its fullest from the very beginning, then why did he have to pray three times? The third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus prays three times in the garden that the Father would remove the cup from him, the wrath that he was about to endure. But three times Jesus prayed that despite his deep longing to forgo the cross. I mean, you see that, right? So the Father's will was for him to go to the cross, but you see a deep longing in Christ to forgo the cross. You see his humanity. I want to forgo the cross. But you see ultimately, all three times, he says, but not my will, your will. Not my desire, but your desire. It's interesting. 
you look at Luke, Luke in this account, in verse 44, adds these words. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops, with great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, whether those were literal blood drops falling to the ground, is, again, another conversation for another time, but the point is, you see the agony. You see the fight that Christ had to live this life of obedience to his Father. Struggle. His obedience was anything but automatic and easy. Praying three times. Struggle to embrace in that place and time the Father's will that he go to the cross. The battle for belief in the goodness and rightness of the Father's will was not quickly and easily grasped a hold of. Think about it. If there was resolution, if there was resolution for his obedience and faith after the first time he prayed, then again, the second and third prayer is just theatrics and should be rendered disingenuous. But instead, we see Christ fighting, fighting, fighting. And he ultimately, right, he does not sin in this. And he's not fighting with the Father, like you see that, right? He's fighting this flesh. Like he's fighting to have faith in God. It's not, God, I don't think you should do this. It's not, God, you're wrong. He's just saying, God, I don't want to do this. But ultimately, I want what you want. And struggling to have that faith. I think we see very clearly Christ learns obedience through what he suffered. And it was all in preparation towards the cross. So two big conclusions to draw from this passage. First of all, Jesus really did struggle to believe and obey the Father. See, I think so. We just, we don't, well, he, 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 did he, he, it was all up here. He was grand, perfect. And, and so we just dismiss it when it comes to running back to him. Right? When it comes to running back to him, when we need things fixed in our life, and a continual submission to, oh, he's God, he, he, that's how he did it. Now I have to figure out my own way to do it, right? Figure out my own way. Jesus really did struggle. We are not honest with the text when we simply chalk it up to saying that Christ's relationship with the Father was easy and automatic. Instead, his obedience here was difficult, painful, agonizing. He struggled to believe and obey the Father. I mean, understand this, guys. For all of eternity, he had never dealt with physical pain, suffering, agonizing because of his obedience. Realize that? So if Christ is in obedience for all of eternity, he never did that facing physical pain, physical agony, suffering, mental agony, suffering, because of his obedience. But here on earth, he faces persecution, right? Because of his obedience. So they want to stone him because he's being obedient to what the Old Testament has called him and sent him to do, what God has sent him to do. He's being obedient to the Father, and it's causing physical pain. He's never experienced that before. So, he learns this obedience. Second conclusion that we should draw from this is that the Father prepared Jesus for the climax of the cross. Don't miss it. All the situations and trials in Christ's life were all in preparation for the moment in that garden. 
Let me ask you a question. Could Jesus have obeyed the Father and gone to the cross to die for our sins when he was 12 years old? What do you think? I mean, don't give me a caveat. What do you think? I don't think he could. Now, if God had willed for that to be the time, then he would have prepared him for that. But given the same sequence of events and circumstances, he would not have been ready to go to the cross. You think he could have done so at the beginning of his ministry at the age of 30? I don't think he could have done it at, 20, at 12, 15, 20, 25, 30, 31, 32. I don't think he could have done it 30 days prior to the garden. But instead, the Father strategically decrees and brings about situations where he grows the faith and obedience of his Son all the way to the point where he is ready for this moment, where any moment prior to this, he could have looked at that and said, not my will, and you know, or, Father, I let this cup pass from me, and you know, I think I'm just not going to do this. Now we get into the argument of could Christ have sinned? I don't want to go there today, okay? But it's clear that he was not ready until this moment. Christ had ordained, or God had ordained for this moment. So in the garden, he is now ready to exercise a faith in the goodness of God, a faith in the wisdom of God, a faith in the justice of God, faith in whatever else that would lead him then to be obedient in the garden. So, second to last big thought here. Jesus was being made perfect. So we talked about how he's learned obedience. Now the second part in this verse, or sorry, in verse 8 and then verse 9, it says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What can this mean? What do you think this means? That he was made perfect. I mean, in light of what we've seen already, it should be clear, I think, what this means. Um, Jesus was the sinless Son of God, Jesus was nothing other than perfect in terms of his righteous character and faithful obedience before the Father. He never wavered from his sinlessness. The term, here's what's interesting, the term perfect here in the Greek refers to bringing about completion or moving to a planned or desired end. So we think about perfect, right? You know, he was perfect at this, perfect at that, that's what it means is that he was moved to completion. That he or uh, so two English words that we could substitute in here would be mature uh, or complete. So he was made complete. He was made mature. So the author here is not referring to Jesus and his sin, but rather to a maturation of his character. So his character of faith and obedience. It's a, a maturing of that, a, a completion of that. The author, um, under, oh, let me say this, understand that Jesus was perfect in his sinlessness, not perfect in his totality, right? Like perfect as in 
His faith is not to its fullest extent. It's not ready at age 30 for the cross. It was later perfected and made ready for the cross. But that doesn't mean that he sinned. Again, understanding his humanity, his faith in God was perfect for the stage in life that he found himself. Right? And I think that if anything, that shines light on God's control and God's design and God's sanctification for us. That God is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? So at this moment, God is, God is still the one in charge of growing your faith, and He'll be the one in charge tomorrow of growing your faith. But here Christ's faith was perfect at every moment for that stage in which He found Himself. But His faith was not perfected in its totality until the cross. And that's when it was, as Hebrews says, made perfect. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I think it's hard for us, and, and probably rightfully so, to understand character formation for Jesus. Because we have so deified him and stripped him of his humanity that we don't think about in terms of character formation. And faith formation, and obedience formation. But, I mean, it's clearly what Hebrews is saying. And, and so hopefully we grab a hold a little bit of that. So look back at the text. He says, verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest that the order after the order of Melchizedek. So he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. So his maturation or his maturing is the outcome of his having learned obedience from what he suffered. You guys catch that? His maturing is the outcome of his having learned obedience from what he suffered. That's where the text takes us. Hebrews 5, 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So only through this process of maturity was Jesus able to be the source of eternal salvation. It was only through learning this obedience that God prepared his son to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Last couple thoughts. What about us? How does this, how does this apply to us? There's many ways. So don't, please do not take the, this lesson that we've learned from Hebrews and limit it to these things. The first thing that applies to us is every opportunity to obey or disobey is an opportunity for character formation and strengthening of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. Every opportunity. I mean, clearly this happened for Jesus. God works similarly in our lives as He did in Christ. Every opportunity is divinely ordained. Is, sorry, every opportunity is a divinely ordained means to perfect us to enable us to learn obedience. Every opportunity. Even the smallest things. Some of us, God does not trust us with the bigger things because He can't trust us with the smaller things. Let me read to you this. It's a fairly lengthy quote, but let me read this to you. He said, this author says, Jesus' training ground of tef- tested faith is the same kind of training that the Father designs for us. When we see this, it transforms how we think about the little acts of obedience or disobedience we face repeatedly throughout each day. 
we can think of those little obediences as of minor or trivial importance, whereas seen rightly, they are divinely ordained means to perfect us, to enable us to learn obedience, so that through these tests of faith, we are matured and strengthened in our character. We have no idea, listen to these, we have no idea what greater opportunities of kingdom work or faith expression might be in the future for us, be prepared for us, if only we are obedient now in smaller ways. Preparing us for these bigger challenges that God in His mercy may bring our way. May we learn from Jesus that every obedience matters. May we obey in the smaller things that we may be prepared for the larger. May we understand the role of faith testing plays and the preparation for what God may have designed for us in the future. May we be more and more like Jesus in his resolve to obey and obey and obey no matter the cost. Second point of application. Suffering, affliction, trials, testing. These are gifts granted to us by God for our growth. These are gifts granted to us by God for our growth. Jesus' journey toward maturity and faith should change the way we think of suffering. No suffering is coincidental. Third point, the life of faith, of growing faith, and strengthening character is one that involves a fight for faith and enduring through difficulties. Right, so this, this life is never meant to be on autopilot mode. We just go through the motions. This is never meant to be that way. This life is never meant to live, be lived passively and at ease. This life isn't something done to us without our full and active participation. So it's the Father who is ultimately in control and He's working, but it is with our participation. Right? Work, you know, Paul talks about working out His salvation, yet it is God who works through Him. So it's God's work ultimately, it's our participation with God. You see Christ offered up prayers and supplications through loud cries. He, he prayed three times for the cup to pass from Him. You see an active, warlike nature of the life of faith. That's what we see in Christ. See Him fighting. 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 We should find it necessary to fight for faith and labor for obedience. Obviously we affirm what Paul says, not I, but the grace of God. Only by God's sustaining and empowering grace can we obey, right? It's only by God's work that we can. But, this, draw, this divine enablement does not replace our responsibility to fight and labor. Rather, God's enablement and God's divine work in our life should activate our resolve to fight. To fight for faith. To fight to be obedient. And guys, there's so many sins in our life that, that we think that I've overcome it today and it's not going to haunt me tomorrow. You know what? That sin might tempt you tomorrow. And it could tempt you every day the rest of your life. A fight for obedience. Now remember, this is the bookend. So we have Christ who is utterly dependent and submissive to the Holy Father, right? 
So we should be utterly dependent and submissive. I'm sorry, I said to the Holy Father, I said Holy Spirit. And, and, and he's submissive to the Holy Father, but he's dependent upon the Holy Spirit's power to live this human life. There we go. So we, likewise, live dependent, utter dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in submission to the Father. So that's that side of it. And then the other side of it is we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in that. And we work hard. We labor. So guys, when we think about this next year, and I don't want to resolve all these grand truths just down to a New Year's resolution. I think that would be quite shallow. But as we seek to move forward in life for this new year and how our minds begin to somehow culturally reset, if you will, to move forward to these new days, uh, let these words challenge that which you set your mind to do and how you set your mind to do it. So some things are just not as important as you might think they are. Let God define that which is most important. And then as you go after it, you go after it with a war-like fight that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit and recognizing God's sovereign control and God's power in your life. So I want to uh, pray for us. Um, and I, I'd like for us to sing one more song, and, and after that we'll be dismissed. Um, we're going to sing the song, It Is Well. And I think this song speaks very closely to suffering, uh, but that it is not my will, but God's will, right? So in the face of what God may have for you tomorrow, or God may have for you three years down the road, it is not your will, but a submission to His will. So let's pray. As the band comes up, Father, again, we thank you for your, your words. Thank you for your truthfulness. Lord, we thank you that you did not set this world in motion and then tell us to go figure it out. But instead, Father, you created this world, and then you set forth a plan to redeem this world after we chose a different place to place our faith. Father, in that plan to redeem this world, Father, you sent forth your Son. And it's this time of year that we celebrate His coming to this earth and the incarnation. And, and Father, I, I, I pray that in each of our lives that we'd understand and relate more fully to the humanity of the one you sent to redeem us, to purchase us. Father, um, help us to see him as you have proclaimed him to be. Father, I know there are so many aspects of this that we don't understand. But Father, I pray that we would spend time today and the days ahead considering how understanding the humanity of Christ rightly, how that should impact our lives daily. And Father, by your grace, give us the power every moment to say, not my will, but your will. That it is well with me. Father, it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys stand with us as we worship.